All right, morning, guys. Morning. Morning. Well, yes. Still waking up. So, like Brandon said, our uh, our women are at our women's retreat, and we had I think almost twenty. We had like I think eighteen or so women who were there at our women's retreat. So, I feel like that's what happens when at least my wife is not in town, as I just stay up until one o'clock in the morning doing nothing. And uh, so it was rough uh, getting getting up this morning. Well, today we're what we're going to be doing is is we're going to be continuing on in our series on the uh, character of God. Whoop! Sorry, getting all. So we're continuing on in our series on the character of God. Where what we're doing is we're taking a look at the first time in the Bible that God actually describes himself. So let's go ahead and read here the story that we've been in these past couple of weeks. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Jimmy, can you shut the doors for me? Thanks, man. Bob, would you, or, or uh, somebody able to shut the other doors, Ray? Can you shut those doors? Awesome. Thank you. Well, last week, last week, Rachel, she talked about the concept of slow to anger. And she spent some time talking about this thing of God's anger. And we, as we were looking out this series, we decided that what we really wanted to do is that we wanted to go ahead and take a look at this over two weeks. Just because I think some of the other attributes of God may be a little bit more uh, easy for us to wrap our heads around. Things like compassionate or gracious, right? That's what a God should be. But when you talk about God's anger, it can be really confusing or really difficult to try to figure out uh, exactly how that plays out. So she spent time talking about how God does get angry and that what makes God angry is sin. Ultimately, when we think about it, I think we want a God who, has, who is emotional, who is moved to times of anger, right? If somebody wrongs you, if somebody does something and you pray to God, I think that we want a God who will respond and will stand up for justice. And ultimately, when we have a God who responds to justice, when we have a God who will come and intervene out of his anger or frustration of the situation we're in, that's something that's good. And she brought up an important question that we're going to be talking about today, is that if God does get angry at sin... Whenever he does, whenever he gets angry, is that response proportional? Is when God acts out in his judgment in the Bible or acts out in anger, is that a reasonable response? You know, we have something called a proportional response, right? It's whenever in us as people or in society, whenever we do something in response to somebody else, we want to make sure it's, it's proportional. So if somebody takes our cell phone, I left my cell phone on the table there, um, but if somebody, if somebody were to swipe my cell phone and then take off with it and get caught later, I think a proportional response would be is that they would give me my cell phone back, you know, maybe pay a fine, you know, get a ticket or something like that. But a proportional response wouldn't be, wouldn't be for me to get a sword and to chop their head off. 
right? That would not be something that's proportional. Have you ever been into a situation before where you see somebody act against somebody not proportionally? Maybe like somebody will make like a small joke at somebody and then somebody will go crazy and just completely blast the other person. And you're like, whoa, that's certainly not proportional. Or somebody will just sock somebody in the face if they make a comment against them. You know, I think a lot of the times us today in society, we judge not so much based on what people do, but if what they do is proportional to somebody else. You know, it may not be reasonable for somebody to hit somebody across the face if they make a joke of their expense, but if you were to take somebody's car and just burn it just for fun, if you were all of a sudden to turn around and punch somebody in the face, that maybe will be seen as much more reasonable, right? That it, so we judge in our society and we judge things based on not so much what people do, but is it reasonable in that moment? And I think that's such a question for God. When we read the Bible and we read these stories in the Old Testament and New Testament of this anger, is that a reasonable re response for God to have? And that's what we're going to talk about and look at today when we look at it. Before we open up, or I guess we've talked about anger last week, but before we talk today a little bit about God's anger, I want to give everyone permission and recognition that there, it is okay to have space in our faith to question some of these topics in the Bible when it relates to God's anger. It's okay to have space to say, I don't really understand exactly how this fits together. In fact, even in our Christian history, the early church, as well as church throughout the millennia, have even struggled with the concept of God's anger and justice. I've heard it said before, a comment, that the Bible has the answer for everything. And I actually disagree with that comment. I don't think the Bible has answers for everything. I think the answer, or I think that the Bible has answers for everything that it answers. Does that make sense? Everything that the Bible chooses to answer, it has answers for. But you see passages in the Bible where the authors admit that they don't know everything. So the people who actually wrote the Bible admit, saying, I don't know everything. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul, he talks about, he says, now while we're on earth, it's like looking into a mirror. And in those days, they didn't have mirrors like are in our bathroom. They had just polished brass. So when you would see yourself in a reflection, you wouldn't see yourself very well. So it says, for now we see in part, it's like looking through like a really poorly lit mirror, but one day we will see clearly. And for me, it actually brings me peace knowing that Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, is admittedly saying, I don't know the answers for everything. I know partly, but not fully. So we'll get into some of those as we move into our roundtable time for discussion. Uh, we'll be, have a, a time where we can explore kind of this space together as we go. Well, if we're going to understand God's judgment, if we're going to understand God's anger, we actually need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, have a biblical view of cosmology, which may not seem like that, but trust me. So I actually have a little uh, object lesson here. Wah! used to be a kid's pastor, so I love object lessons. So we see in Genesis 1, what happens is, is it says that God created the heavens and the earth. So right here, I've got some Legos. We are just going to pour out. So it says, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then we get to Genesis 2 here, where it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So when God created the heavens and the earth, it says that he created something that was complete chaos. I can't describe anything that's more chaotic than a bunch of Legos just spilled everywhere. You go to my house, there's Legos everywhere in it, right? You have this chaos that just reigns. And it says that in the very beginning, heaven and earth was here. And God was hovering over the waters. And then through the rest of the story in Genesis, what do you see God doing? He goes and he brings order to what is chaotic. So you see him ordering his universe the way that he wants to do it. He takes what was formless and empty, and he creates order where there's disorder. And then what he does is he pushes all of the chaos, everything aside, and he creates a spot here where things are perfectly ordered, and he calls them the Garden of Eden. That's where man and woman is, right here in the middle. And then we see Genesis 3 happen, where Man decides to sin. We decide to eat from the tree. And what happens? We are expelled. Man is expelled from this garden place. And it says what happens is is that we then enter the chaos. So man is now here. This is man. We're now here. And the place that was ordered, the place where God had specifically placed for us that was holding it all together is no more. So now we have areas in our lives where there's still some order. There's still some areas where God has created, but there's also chaos that's around us. And then you have the entire story of the Bible until now where we're in this weird spot where there is places that God has created, but yet don't we know is there also chaos in all of our lives, right? We're in this area, this space together. And so what happens in the story? When man and woman are expelled from the Garden of Eden, do we do really well over the next bit of time? Are we succeeding? We see we're not. Fast forward to Genesis 6, and we get to the flood story for Noah. And we see probably the single act, the biggest act of judgment, God's judgment, that happens on earth. You see the state of where everything is. Let's go ahead and read here. Genesis 6 says here, Then the Lord saw that wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on earth. And he was grieved in his heart. I find it fascinating here in this passage that God looks down at all the chaos, all of the destruction that our decisions, that mankind's decisions and actions have made. And we notice here that God isn't angry. Instead, he's grieved. He looks down at what's happening. And he is just in intensely grieved and sorry for the state of where humanity is at. He sees that what was happening, the evil and the trajectory that mankind was on and where it was going to lead. 
And then he does something fascinating here in Genesis chapter 13. The language that he used is so fascinating. It gives us clue into God's judgment and anger here. It's easy to miss, but super profound in Genesis 13. Sorry, that's the wrong actual verse. It's Genesis 6, verses 13. I don't think it's on the uh, board here. So it says here, Then God said to Noah, The end of humanity has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So Genesis 6, chapter, or 6, 13 God says to Noah, the end of humanity has come before me. So think about those words. He is looking and he looks down at Noah and he says, at the end of humanity, everything of what humanity is, the end of it has come before me. It's the same type of picture that we see that if somebody were to come knocking on the door, if like humanity is knocking on the door and says, hey, this person has come before me. It says that the end of everybody has come before God. He's saying that the destruction of everybody was, that the trajectory of everybody is in this destruction and that the end of humanity is there. So God is basically saying that the sin is so bad and wicked that there's nothing that can do for it to be redeemed. It's just continually going worse and worse and worse. And notice what God does is actually really poetic and for us to understand Hebrew poetry is that in the flood story, you see the waters begin to swallow up the earth. And it likens back, if you remember, what was covering the surface of the deep at the very beginning of the creation story. It was the waters, the chaotic waters, that the earth was formless and void. And so you have this picture that the earth, the very thing that's been corrupted due to the behavior, swallows everyone up. And Noah is saved. So, rather than having humanity end at that moment, because that's where humanity is going, if they continue down that path, God says, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to choose to save humanity. And the way I'm going to save humanity is not allow this last person, Noah and his family, to be corrupted. And that the trajectory that everybody else is on, which is the end of humanity, I'm just going to follow through that, and I'm going to let that continue on. Almost kind of like they're destroying themselves. They set a self-destruct button on themselves, so God says, I'm going to speed that up so that they don't infect this other family. It's this weird aspect where if you believe what the Bible says, that the trajectory of humans was that it was going to end humanity, it's this, the flood narrative is this weird mercy because through that narrative, we are still here. That God saved humanity because he allowed this one people group to be able to stay and remain. There's a uh, story, a movie, that has terrorized like one of the most disturbing Stories that has terrorized the generations and generations of kids ever since it was created in the 50s. And the movie is Old Yeller. You guys ever seen or heard of the story Old Lover? Every single generation of kids has terrified them. In this, it started as a book and turned into a Disney movie. This is like in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, Disney movies like said real stuff. And you had a dog who was beloved by this boy who was bitten by a rabid wolf. Who had, and so this dog... 
old yeller was bitten and it looked like he might have rabies. So they put old yeller in this pen to see if he would get sick. And after a while, after a couple of days of being there, old yeller was, did have rabies and he was acting out. And so in that moment, they had the decision, like, should we let him out? If we let old yeller out, he's going to attack the rest of the family and corrupt everybody else, right? All of us are going to get rabies. And in those times, they didn't have medicine the way that they do now. And so old yeller was at the point where he was already too far gone. And so in the story, you get the young kid who gets the gun and then shoots his dog. Like, terrifying. I have a dog, and that's terrifying. I remember seeing the movie when I was a kid. And this story of Old Yeller is similar to what happens in this flood narrative where humanity had gotten to the point where God says that the end of humanity is near, that they are just destroying themselves. They are moving from order to just chaos. And this chaos is so bad that they're going to wipe themselves out. So I'm going to go ahead and find a way to save the rest of humanity. We have verses such as the wages of sin is death. And when we say that, we mean that through the decisions that we have, through the decisions that we make, it leads to death. That sin leads to death. We don't believe that God is killing us slowly over a lifetime, but instead we believe that sin has entered and allows us to be killed. And this is the most interesting part and one of the most difficult parts for us to really understand is that God gives us what we say we want. And this is the most interesting part of the judgment that we can choose to live out of the middle of his goodness. That in the moment when we choose sin, in the moment when we choose to live our life that way, God will allow us to walk those ways and say, you say that you want to live apart from me, apart from what I give you, I'll allow that. Almost like a tug of war between us and God where we're pulling against everything we have due to our nature, right? Due to the times that we mess up and we're like, I know the right thing to do here, but I'm going to do the wrong thing. That he allows us eventually, if we play it out, he'll allow us to eventually win. But what we also see is that God never gives up on his people. In the book of Judges, we actually see an entire book that carries this theme where God's people will sin, get into problems, turn their backs on him, and then all of a sudden they will be handed over. Almost like this picture of like being expelled from the Garden of Eden. God says, all right, that's fine. I'll go ahead and let those around you, the chaos of everything around you, take over. And then they cry out to God again and again. And what does God do? He comes in, he saves them, he turns them around, and then they go right back way to the ways that they were acting. Judges 2, in his anger anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. So again, we see these, area, these times of God's people struggling, and it's this picture of God 
basically handing over and saying, okay, if you're going to choose that way, if you want to choose to live a life apart from me, I'll go ahead and allow that and place you and give you over to the things that you say that you want to do. We see the same story in Romans 1. Three different times it talks about God's anger. And it says three different times in Romans 1 that God handed people over to their sin. Handed people over. It's this picture of God saying, okay, if this is the decision that you want to make, you can go ahead and have it. And it's interesting. When we begin to have a biblical cosmological view of what exactly God's anger and wrath is, it really helps change the story in my mind. That God's judgment, his anger, isn't vindictive or malicious. God brings order to what is chaotic. He brings order to what's there. And yet through our decisions and through our actions, we will choose the chaos over order. Have anyone ever else chosen the chaotic things over God? Yeah. All the time I'm faced with that decision of like, yeah, I know what I should do and what I shouldn't do, but I'm going to choose the thing that I shouldn't want to do. And it's through those actions, through those choices, that we set that self-destroy button. I've seen that before, I don't know, Star Trek or wherever else, right, where you have the ship, you set that self-destruct button, and all of us, we decide to set that button for ourselves, and God allows us to set that button, and he'll say, hey, I got a way where that doesn't have to go off. You, you 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 don't have to be on the ship when it blows. I remember we, uh, at our last men's retreat, we played paintball in one of our times. And whenever you play paintball, they usually will have a set space where you will have, like, usually walls and then, like, some type of mesh or something. And it's a safe zone where you're not going to get hit by paintballs there. And even if somebody tries to shoot you, uh, the, the paint will get blocked by this mesh here. So anywhere else on the paintball field, you are in danger of getting shot. So you don't take your helmets off. You don't do anything else. But when you're inside this zone, you're allowed to then take your helmet off. You're allowed to rest because you're in a safe place where you're not going to get hit. And as I was thinking about it, it kind of reminded me of this picture of the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of the Kingdom of God where we can be in. And all of a sudden we'll say, hey, God, I understand where I'm at and what you're giving for me, but I think I want to go out there. That paintball looks pretty fun. And God's like, all right, I'll let you go. I don't think it's a great idea. And then we'll walk outside, get hit with a paintball in our face, and be like, what the heck, God? Why did you allow this to happen? We're like, well. (laughs) But what God will do is he invites us back into that area and we see with his people that they are continually invited back and back and back again in fact when you begin to see the story of the old testament and you read it start to finish you'll find that god is a lot more loving than maybe you would think you see what you do you see lots of stories like the passage that we're reading in exodus We've said it over the past couple of weeks, but we see God's people during the ceremony where they are formalizing the covenant decide to make idols and decide to worship them during the middle of the ceremony. And God in that moment is angry. And at that moment, he decides 
rather than just wipe out the people and start over again, rather than just completely turn their backs and say, well, that's fine, go ahead and pray to those idols, he decides to forgive and he decides to continue on. You see it over and over and over again. You see time after time how we as people continually mess up and God continues to forgive. And that's why the verse that we read when God talks about his anger, he says that he's slow to anger. Meaning, that it's not that he doesn't get angry, but it takes an awful long time to get to that spot. And ultimately, when we see the continuation of the story in the New Testament, we see that what happens is, God sends the ultimate act of restoration, the ultimate act of bringing order back to our lives in the person of Jesus. The full picture of God, the full picture of what it means to fall under his goodness. So I guess... In answering the question, is God's anger proportional? Is when we see God in his word or in our lives acting with anger, is it something that's deserved? At least to the authors of the Old Testament, in God's anger, he is giving us the very thing that we say that we want. He is allowing us to move outside from that place that is ordered into places of chaos. And that's part of the mystery that I still don't quite understand. That space of how God allows us in that moment. But what I love is, even though I don't quite understand how all of that works... I love that God is constantly in a spot where he invites us back in. He invites us and gives us a place to where we can come back in to order. So what I'd like to do right now is we've kind of moved to our table time to talk about this. So I said at the beginning that there's space for us to wrestle and kind of question this. So we're going to do that right now. So I know we've got a couple different tables here, so maybe we'll merge tables. Everyone in the back can kind of come, uh, and we'll go, and we'll talk about this very thing, and I'll go ahead and close this uh, as we end. We'll talk about it today.